Hello, everyone, and welcome into CrushTheStreet.com. I am Kenneth Amender, and I'm joined today with Jeffrey Nielsen, uh, someone who's been on the show before and given us a lot of insight on the economy, finance, precious metals. And we're going to be talking about all of that today and more. His website is dynamicwealthresearch.com. Visit that website and uh, visit him there. But to get an idea of what you can expect there, we're going to be diving into all things economic today. Where are we with precious metals? Where are we with the markets? Uh, maybe investor sentiment, kind of where we're all looking at You know what is going on with trillions of dollars of stimulus, money printing, seemingly chaotic governments, but yet gold and silver are below their all-time highs. Silver 50% lower than where it was in 1980. I think a lot of people are scratching their heads wondering why it's underperforming over the last decade, uh, the stock market and, and things like real estate in the face of just insane money printing. Uh, we're going to talk about that today. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show with me. Always a pleasure, Kenneth. Well, kind of set you up there uh, with the background of you know where we can start. I mean, they're talking about trillion dollar packages now. And, and I think that it's just become so disconnected to the average person. Uh, what is directly connected to the average person is a paycheck that they get to cash and spend on new shoes, new iPhones, maybe go to Vegas. Uh, but what they're not connected to is the trillions of dollars that's being added to our national debt. And uh, it may be the connection to why in 12 months they might have to pay another $100,000 for the house that they could have bought uh, this year because uh, money is chasing hard assets in this environment. And so uh, maybe you can address that to a certain degree here. I know it's a loaded question with so many things to talk about. We could probably talk an hour on this, but uh, maybe we can uh, chomp at the bit here a little bit and uh, address that. So let's simplify this and, and look at just real estate and precious metals. Um, so as I was saying to you before we started uh, the, the interview, you know, I, I'm not doing this precious metals gig full time anymore, um, in part because I just got frustrated with all of the noise about precious metals. And I'm not talking about just the crap in the mainstream media, even a lot of the alternative media stuff is absolutely useless because it, it, it's expressed in terms of the fraudulent monetary paradigm in which we live, the US dollar paradigm, you know, that this worthless currency is the anchor of the global economy. It's, you know, a concept almost too ludicrous to contemplate. So, so when I discuss investing, uh, I do so from the perspective of two words, wealth preservation. The problem is, is, is that's a principle of legitimate monetary system, something people have no exposure to. So when I say wealth preservation, people's eyes tend to glaze over, you know, they go to sleep. It sounds like the most boring thing in the universe, but wealth preservation is actually the, the fundamental premise behind investing. So the reality is, is that when you invest your money and, and, and you look at the nominal gains you're achieving expressed in, in ever depreciating US dollars, the reality is, is that you're not making money at best, you're preserving wealth. And so the best way to illustrate this is in fact real estate. So let's take Manhattan residential real estate. Go back 100 years, uh, you know, look at the price then compared to today. So uh, expressed in depreciating dollars, Manhattan residential real estate has, has notched a 10,000% nominal gain 
over that 100 years. But the picture is totally different when you actually price it in real money, in gold. So like I say, it's increased by 10,000% nominally in US dollars. Guess how much Manhattan real estate has increased over 100 years when you price it in gold? I don't know. (laughs) 25%. 25% over 100 years. But of course, you wouldn't actually get to net that 25% gain. Because when you own real estate, you're paying property taxes on the real estate every year. Uh, if you had, unless you paid cash for that Manhattan real estate, you're, you're wasting more money on interest on your mortgage payments. And then of course, gold is more liquid, it's portable. So over a span of 100 years, Manhattan residential real estate cannot compare to gold as an investment. Hmm. But are and you leaving fact, out rental income from, from that equation? Well, well, but so, I mean, yeah, so so yeah, technically you could be generating income off the property, but I mean that's that's like so that's an entirely different equation because in fact there's gold leasing. So I mean you know people can the, the myth is that gold generates no income, but the fact is that people lease gold. So I mean mm, that's and, a good and, point. You know, so I mean it's it's you know when we when we get into secondary income that you're driving from an asset, um, you know th- that we're talking about something altogether different. So the other thing is that you can pledge gold to back you know, all sorts of, of other investments. So, and, and then drive income from that because it's such a fantastic hard asset. It's the premier hard asset. So it's the mm-hmm. ultimate collateral. So, you know, getting into secondary income is kind of a uh, misleading tangent, you know, from the basic premise that in terms of the asset value itself, Manhattan residential real estate has not actually increased in value. Mm-hmm. It's done a very good job of preserving wealth, almost as good as gold. So, so if you start thinking of wealth preservation in terms of Manhattan residential real estate, then suddenly wealth preservation, and, and you start equating gold with Manhattan residential real estate, then suddenly wealth preservation sounds like a lot more exciting. Yeah. So, and, and of course, when you look at the prices, you know, most of the at an increase in, in Manhattan residential real estate has been in the recent decades, just like most of the increase in the price of gold has been in recent decades. So it's not like this is a, an archaic comparison. It's a comparison that's held true over the long term for 100 years. So you can't judge gold, you know, based over any shorter time span, even a period of several years. And one of the reasons you can't is because of the fact that uh, like, since gold and silver are precious metals, they are conserved rather than consumed. So, you know, all of the gold that's ever been mined in the history of humanity is still out there in existence in, in the marketplace. Um, minus what's been you know, dedicated to, you know, religious purposes and other sorts of shrines, things like that, heirlooms. But so the fact is, is because there's such a huge pool of gold over any shorter time horizon, even a time horizon of several years, market distortions can make, you know, the, the picture look markedly different. And of course, when we talk about market distortions, we're talking about the ever-present manipulation of the gold market by the banking cartel, which has been exposed, you know, in in numerous ways. So, you know, you don't buy gold for a short-term profit. You buy gold to preserve wealth. And because you know, over the long term, it's going to do as good as any asset that exists in the world. Yeah. Well, let me ask a couple more controlled opposition questions for you. Um, I guess what's what's difficult for someone like me who's owned gold now for a while and believes in it. You know, I, I share reasons why I think now is the time uh, to be owning gold and silver, especially is that we've seen gold 
I guess, pair, pale in comparison to real estate and stocks, you know, let's say over the last decade, I mean, gold has gone down uh, from its high in, in 2011. We're just barely getting back there. Meanwhile, stocks have gone crazy. And it, what's the other anomaly is that we're in this like hockey stick uh, environment of craziness and money printing. So, you know, in the face of news headlines that are saying inflation is coming, uh, money printing, $3.5 trillion stimulus programs, you know, potentially more lockdowns, Delta variant, you know, even more lockdowns, even more money printing. I mean, all these things in gold is just almost uh, 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 an afterthought in the back of our minds and it's not performing. And so people are really demoralized in terms of their belief in gold as that historic uh, wealth preservation vehicle. So there's two, two uh, short-term issues here that have really impacted the gold market. One of them is the COVID pandemic. So what did we see when the pandemic struck? So of course we had the, the typical crisis attack on the gold and silver markets and the prices were driven down. Then we had the massive rebound, which we also see in this scenario, as of course uh, the market rushed in to take advantage of these safe haven assets that were discounted by ridiculous levels. But then uh, things got weird because of course the COVID lockdowns came in. And so I never even really thought about the significance of this at the time, but what did the COVID lockdowns do? Well, they kept people in China and India the world's two biggest bullion markets from going out and buying jewelry and going to bullion stores for several mm. months. So that was a massive hit to gold and silver demand over a period of several months. Mm. And so that's that's one side of it. And then the, the other side, oh, what was that? I was gonna point out here. Is that, that's the top of my tongue. You know, I, I lost it. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things, sometimes they, they just slip away. But yeah, so, but even just the, the China and India factor, I mean, that, that was a major dynamic in, in reducing demand for gold and silver. And so, uh, you know, that, and, and of course, so the gold and silver market, of course, is it's controlled by the big banks. The price only res really responds to one thing, and that's heavy physical buying. Because the, the reality is, is that when all of the bullion is bought and it's gone, the game is over. You know, they, they could leverage bullion by any ridiculous amount they want, but they can't leverage zero, you know. So, so as long as there's plenty of metal around, they can, they can go, you know, really aggressive with their manipulation games. Mm. And so it's all about physical demand. So when the physical demand backs off, even though we've, even though we've been seeing heavy investment demand in North America, it doesn't uh, offset the world's two biggest bullion markets seeing this major drop off. So, you know, that's been a major factor in, in, in keeping demand depressed. And so, but we're, we're going to see that reverse now. And uh, so that's, you know, that's been a, a, oh, sorry. And then the other thing that's been hitting demand, and, and, and certainly this is a bigger factor in the West, are cryptocurrencies. So this is where things get really hilarious. So cryptocurrencies are seen by the people that believe in them as alternatives and threats to the conventional banking system. Obviously, the big banks are aware of this. So what they go and do is every time a new cryptocurrency is created, they buy most of the supply. <laughs> you know, what, what do you do if you're threatened by competitors? Well, you buy them out. 
<laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's so obvious. I don't understand why everybody else isn't seeing this. So when you see these massive spikes when cryptocurrencies are launched, it's the big bank cartel taking control. So they take control for several reasons, obviously because it's a threat. Um, but secondly, when they control the supply, they control the trading. They can induce any trading pattern they want. And in particular, they can induce the massive volatility we see with these cryptocurrencies. So cryptocurrencies are not a threat to replace conventional currencies as long as there is massive volatility because they cannot be used on a broad commercial basis when they're going up and down like this. As a company, you know, you can't afford to take a 20% hit on a particular month just from currency exchange because cryptocurrency took a savage beating. You know, so, so, so they control the supply, so they can control the trading, so they can control whether these currencies are ever really adopted. And so we recently saw El Salvador make uh, Bitcoin uh, uh, a legal tender currency. So what did we immediately see the next day? Well, Bitcoin was whacked by 15% or whatever. So, I mean, you know, who could have seen that coming? Well, maybe the people who know it's the big banks that are holding the supply, you know? So, but, so, but, so here's the thing. So on the one hand, they hate, cryptocurrencies. On the other hand, they hate gold and silver way, way, way more. So they sit back, they let the cryptocurrencies bubble because they know that we don't really have investors in markets anymore. We have momentum chasing gamblers. So when the cryptocurrencies are going like this, the dollars that would be going into gold and silver as the ultimate inflation shields are being sucked away by this hockey stick or you know several of them and so of course at some point the game of musical chairs is going to end the bankers are going to pull the bottom up from under the cryptocurrencies and you know if you don't get out at the wrong time you're going to get crushed so i mean that, that's the reality of the matter cryptocurrencies have no intrinsic value people talk about them having artificial value because they limit supply but that's uh, that's in, in essence a fraud because it, it's only a legitimate factor if if there's only a legitimate sorry, if there's only a limited number of cryptocurrencies. It doesn't matter if each cryptocurrency has a limited supply if there's an infinite number of cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just a different way of, of, of dilution. So so the point is this 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 fantasy that cryptocurrencies have intrinsic value is going to cause people to get brutally bashed at some point. Um, whereas gold as hard assets has only one ending that it's going to do as well as the best assets at the end of the day. Yeah. So, you know, if you're discouraged by what happens over the short term, you have to become a big picture guy. You have to look at the finish line. And of course, you know, the other, other side of it. So when people talk about chasing gains, you know, this, that's aggressive investing. So we're in this period of ultimate craziness, ultimate economic uncertainty, you know, threats to our economies collapsing, threat to our governments collapsing from debt. So what I keep telling people is in times of, of such chaos and uncertainty, you shouldn't be playing maximum offense in market, you should be playing defense. Don't go chasing hockey sticks, mm. you know, go for the best wealth preservation vehicle in the history of humanity. Because you know, at the end of the day, no matter what happens in all this chaos, the gold's going to end up as good as any asset out there. What do you think so, about you know, stocks in this environment, though, Jeff? I mean, I know stocks have gone crazy; they've done well. Uh, but do you think there's truth to stocks being a hedge against this inflation that we're seeing with all this money that's being printed? Uh, there's more dollars with the same amount of goods and services, so of course stocks are going up. Is that logical? 
So hard asset, any hard asset is a hedge against inflation. Any hard asset preserves wealth. You take the wealth you earn in your daily wages, you put it into a hard asset, you know, and that ounce of gold or that pound of copper is still an ounce of gold or a pound of copper a year from now. It preserves your wealth. So, um, so it, it's sorry. So with um, so when it comes to um, whether an asset is a hedge against inflation, um, first of all, there's two issues. One is is it a hard asset? So of course, real estate's a hard asset. Gold's a hard asset. Most stocks are are are, are reflect companies that have at least some foundation of hard assets. So there's a hard asset foundation in stocks. So whether or not something is an effective inflation hedge is A, is it a hard asset, but B, what's the valuation? So of course, real estate is generally a hedge against inflation, but not when real estate prices you know, have raced you know, to ridiculous levels. Really, you know, real estate is a, is a ridiculous bubble and a bubble can't be a hedge. So uh, some stocks are in ridiculous bubbles. You know, Apple's not a hedge, Google's not a hedge, Tesla's not a hedge. But if you look at gold and silver mining stocks that have been pushed down to, you know, even more ridiculous valuations than gold and silver, so there's a hedge. Because, you know, we know where gold and silver is going to be the finish line, and we know that the gold and silver stocks over the long term outperform bullion. So if you're looking for stocks to hedge against inflation, you, you don't buy the most expensive stocks, you buy the cheapest stocks. Right. You know, you don't buy real estate, the most expensive hedge against inflation. You buy gold, the cheapest hedge against inflation. You know, it, it's just simple, you know, uh, relative value uh, proposition. And so gold and silver completely win right now. So for anybody, any serious rational investor, you know, you don't look at gold and silver and say, oh, well, gee, they're not doing very well. I'm not going to buy them. You know, if Manhattan real estate goes down 40 percent in price, are people going to you know, hold their nose and say, well, I'm not going to buy Manhattan real estate because it's too cheap. No, people don't say that. They say, gee, I'm going to buy as much Manhattan real estate as I can afford because I know it's worth something. So, you know, Manhattan real estate equals gold. You know, when real estate goes down, people like it. When gold goes down, you should like it. You know, it's real simple. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and, and just to touch on the investor psychology of that, you know, when stocks are seemingly in this upward trend. And when it goes down, it seems like a, like a buying opportunity because people are trained to believe it's going higher. Same thing with real estate. There seems to be a little more of a steady rise, whereas gold and silver, it just, it kind of languishes for a while or when it looks like it's going to go up, it, it goes down. And again, I'm short, looking at a shorter time, time, time span here uh, where I think real estate had a little more of a, it didn't like peak in 2008 and stay below that. Like we've gotten past where, you know, it had uh, hit highs in 2000, you know, six, seven, eight, and we're beyond that now. Whereas gold, you know, we're barely, we're still below where we were in 2011. So it's that investor psychology where we don't really know if gold is in a correction. It's, I mean, we know that, you know, if you step back and look objectively, but emotionally people don't know if they believe that. And so I think that's where we are with that. And, you know, I can, you know, you can share some thoughts on that. I don't want to belabor the point too much, but well, no, I know no, what we're a, dealing with. I know what we're dealing with here. Yeah, no, there's a definite point to be made. And, and the point is, is that um, because our markets have been totally overrun by the algorithm, which, algorithms, which now control roughly 80% of trading, there's 
there's no connection between price and value. So when you know we've been talking about value, that's one discussion. So now we're talking about price. So price today is a function of one thing, capital flows. So you, you alluded to it earlier, the money printer, vertical. So to understand how crazy that is today, we have to go back in time. So when I was covering, you know, really into this sector and covering things closely, of course, we had Ben Bernanke doing his insane currency creation. And I would flash, you know, the, <clears throat> the uh, monetary uh, chart of the U.S. money supply on a regular basis because it was this hockey stick. Then in 2014 or 15 or so, we had Bernanke talk about tapering. And I was adamant that you cannot taper from an exponential function. That's a mathematical impossibility. When, when, you, when you get like this, that's the mathematical representation of out of control. Once you're out of control, only two things happen. You keep going straight up until you have this ultimate blow off explosion, or you try to escape and you have implosion. Everything, the bottom falls out of everything. So the one thing that could not possibly happen is what Bernanke claimed he did, tapered, you know, and basically leveled things off. So in 2013, this is what the U.S. money printing looked like. Well, if you look at the money supply of the U.S. today, of course, with Powell, it looks like this. But 2013 looks like this. So, so of course, they see they've, they've fudged the charts so much. So for one thing, they stretched out the axis. So, so you know, 2013 looked like this. Today looks like this with the axis stretched out. If you compress the axis to the same degree as it was in 2013, what's happening today, you know, would be absolutely vertical and, and it would be stretching to the sky. Like you, you couldn't contain it in a single chart. So, you know, so uh, unless of course you totally crunch the, the vertical scale. So, so, so this is, is the point. So the in, in money printing insanity today is an order, it's so much more extreme than what we saw when it was already out of control that, it, 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 that the, the previous hockey stick is almost invisible. But of course, the other point is, is that all you see with the US money supply is this in, in through 2014, 2015, 2016, there was no taper. You know, that was, that was a lie and a fraud. So of course, once again, we have to start talking about tapering. And, you know, maybe they're gonna manage to pull off another, uh, monetary fraud and show people a chart that looks to be going like this. But the reality is, is that when you see the money printing five years from now, it'll still be going steadily up and the new money, and assuming the US dollar even exists in five years, which is extremely dubious, the new money printing chart will be like this. So we're, we're still trapped in this exponential function. And of course, at this point, the Fed is, is showing no, uh, no ambiguity that it's going for the blow off top. So we have all this liquidity pouring out of the Fed and pouring into where? Well, I've talked about it, real estate bubble, cryptocurrency bubble, bubble in large cap stocks. And then of course we, ha we have the, the ever present black hole of the derivatives market. So you see the reason we didn't- Well, and inflation not... too. I mean, we're seeing it in, in the price well, yeah, of goods. So, so, but, so let's, let's address that. So we, we did not see the big wave of inflation when Bernanke did his monetary craziness. Why? because they had more control over the economy at that time, and they were able to direct virtually all of that excess liquidity into the derivatives black hole. 
So the derivatives, so the derivatives market went up like this in, in terms of total size and valuations, and, but the derivatives market is totally insulated from the real world. So that's why there was no inflation, no price inflation uh, filtering out to the broader economy. The current scenario is totally different. And I, and I told people, you know, I've been telling people this for years, you know, that, 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 that this, that the only one where this game can end because as the economy gets more and more damaged by monetary policy, more and more of the money printing has to flow into the real world just to avoid complete collapse. And so we see that in spades with the COVID pandemic where government support to the broader economy has been significant and dramatic and continues. And that, and so when the money printing flows into the real economy, you get inflation. So, you know, it's, it's no surprise at all. You know, the, the central banks pretend to be totally ignorant of the principles of a monetary system that, that the money printing leads to inflation. But of course, that is the reality. Uh, you know, Milton Friedman uh, famously said that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Alan Greenspan warned us that in the absence of a gold standard, there is no way to protect savings from confiscation through inflation. So, you know, it's not like this is a mystery. You know, the Who takes that? Involved... Who confiscates it? So, so, so inflation confiscates it. So it's, it's, uh, I don't Is that know, wealth not transferred though? I mean, so are we the, not seeing that wealth transferred to someone else? So I can explain this in, in an extended metaphor if you want to give me some time. It'll take you about five minutes. I mean, we got time to do that? We, we, got, we do have five minutes. We're good. Okay. So let's take a hypothetical example, hypothetical example of Gilligan's Island. And for you know, your, your viewers who are too young to know what Gilligan's Island is, that's a TV series. Oh, about I love Gilligan. Seven, seven stranded castaways on a desert island. So on Gilligan's Island, uh, Mr. Howell, the rich banker, decides that they should have their own monetary system. So he creates a supply of dollars for the island. Uh, he creates $700, uh, $100 for each of the castaways. Uh, we'll call those Howell dollars. And, and the supply stays constant. So everybody has $100. There's a fixed supply of goods, a fixed supply of currency. So there's no inflation. There's no monetary inflation. Prices stay stable. Um, but Mr. Howell, of course, being a banker, says, you know, I'm going to pay myself $1 a month for running the monetary system. Well, even Gilligan can figure out what a racket banking is. That, you know, eventually, Mr. Howell's going to have all the money. So Gilligan decides to create his own currency, uh, called those Gilligan dollars. And he starts off and he creates 700 Gilligan dollars. So uh, the first thing that happens is now there's a total of $1,400 on the island, 700 Howell dollars, 700 Gilligan dollars. So what happens to prices? Well, there's the same number of goods with twice as much currency chasing it. So prices double, but, but mm -hmm. if, if, if that was the end of the equation, then you'd have that one shock and it would level off. But of course, Gilligan doesn't understand the principles of the monetary system. And so realizing this, Mr. Howell and the professor, and of course, Mr. Howell, they have nothing at all to do with Gilligan dollars. So those three castaways continue using only Howell dollars. Meanwhile, you have uh, Marianne and Ginger and the skipper and Gilligan using Gilligan dollars. So Gilligan says to the people using Gilligan dollars, you know what? we should raise our standard of living. I'm gonna print up another 100 Gilligan dollars. You know, and then we're all gonna be rich. Well, no, 
because now instead of there being 1400 total dollars chasing the same number of goods, there's $1,500. Mm -hmm. Prices go up again to reflect the increased supply of currency. Nobody gets richer. Right. But Gilligan doesn't stop there. It's like he doesn't, you know, Hunter didn't make us richer, so I'm going to keep doing this. So every week he starts creating 100 more Gilligan dollars. Well, what happens? So first of all, the Gilligan dollars don't really make people richer. That all gets confiscated in inflation. But what if you're holding Howell dollars and all of a sudden there's 700 Howell dollars out there and 7,000 Gilligan dollars out there? Mm. The 700 Howell dollars, unless, unless the Gilligan dollars have been devalued, the 700 Howell dollars have lost all their purchasing power. The wealth from the Howell dollars has been stolen by the currency, <clears throat> currency creation of the Gilligan dollars. Hmm. You know, they, they, unless they there's have... a demand for uh, a more finite or. Uh, a well, of course, finite... we're, we're on Gilligan's Island, so there's only a limited complexity in this system. So I'm, you know, I'm dumbing this down so people just can see the principle here. Yes. So the principle is, you know, that that dilution has a price. You know, right. we understand dilution when we talk about stocks. Company right. prints a bunch of shares, the share price goes down. You've diluted the, the, the share structure, so the value of each share is less. But mm -hmm. the central bankers pretend when they create more units of currency that the unit value of the currency doesn't go down. Well, of course it does. Right. Now, of course, because they can distort the markets, they can, and, and you see, because... So here's the other thing. So we have all of these paper currencies that are all simultaneously depreciating. Well, relatively speaking, at any given time, one of those depreciating currencies can be look higher than the other. So, you know, the lying central bankers say, look at the US dollars increased in value. No, it's just been falling less fast than the other paper currencies. So, mm. so none, none of these currencies ever rise in value. That's deflation. And deflation, of course, is not allowed because that causes all the debt bubbles to implode. Mm -hmm. We have all of these ever depreciating currencies with the relative value of these currencies fluctuating, creating short-term illusions. Some of them are actually rising in value, but they're continually plunging in value because money printing dilutes the currency, dilution reduces the value. And, and of course, when you do this, the people who are creating the currency are stealing the wealth out of the people holding the currency, just like they, they could do on Gilligan's Island. Well, and that, that's so powerful. And, I, and thank you for doing that. I've been trying to articulate inflation and, and, and why it's so complex uh, in my own way. And, and that was done very well. I mean, you have the greater good of the island, right? But the, in between there, there's people that benefit within that destructive structure so that's part of the problem like people can't just all agree like hey this is not good overall because maybe you have people working for the government who benefit from money printing because the government prints and then pays their employees more and um, they're able to keep their jobs and they get their raises they get all their their benefits their programs even though the overall system is collapsing there's people within the system that feel like they're doing better which keep it going and well, it's, very, it's very simple. Um, so the closer you are to the printing press, the better you do. Mm. So the big banks, of course, are right on top of it. So they profit the most from this theft by inflation. But the governments are also very close to the printing press, obviously. So they do next best from theft by inflation. And then the wealthy are next closest to the printing press. So they, of course, do well by theft by inflation. So you see, 
when Greenspan issued his warning in 1966, Greenspan was this silly professor who was under the delusion that this quote unquote welfare statists were gonna use inflation to steal all of the wealth from the wealthy and share it with the people. And this horrified Greenspan. I mean, to him, this was the, the worst crime imaginable. So then the bankers came to Greenspan and they whispered in his ear and they said, you know, Alan, it's actually the rich who use inflation to steal everybody else's wealth. So as soon as they explained that to Greenspan, he volunteered to lead the parade and became you know, the greatest monetary criminal of prior to Bernanke and, and, and Powell and Yellen. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what it is. And it's amazing how uh, the people that are at the bottom, furthest away from the printing press, uh, surrender their votes, surrender their willingness to allow this uh, for the the optics that this is greater good, the belief yeah, that this is all the for abusers. the greater good. They support the abusers. You know, it, support it's the completely abusers. masochistic. Well, uh, Jeff, uh, that was incredible. Uh, please, if you would, share some thoughts. What is some of the latest projects you're working on? Uh, you know, and give us some, you know, closing thoughts here as to, you know, where people can find you, what you're working on. And, you know, if people visit you, what they can expect to find. Well, so one of the reasons that I'm not that busy with precious metals these days is that I've gotten very involved uh, in the psychedelic drug sector. And, uh, of course, with COVID, people are no really noticing the mental health crisis more than ever. Um, you know, it's a terrible problem. There's two billion untreated mental health disorders in the world today. And, and psychedelic drugs have been a revolutionized healthcare. You know, we're going from, from uh, people unable to get adequate treatment for mental health to psychedelic medicine being able to cure these conditions, you know, often in, in just a few sessions. So it's gonna revolutionize healthcare for 2 billion people. Plus there's all these other applications. So I've been so excited by the uh, potential of psychedelic medicine that I've, I've been heavily involved with that. And I'm uh, running a site called psychedelicstockwatch.com. So if people want to have a look at that, you know, and, and, and of course there is an example of, of, you know, what I tell people is a hedge against inflation. You know, this is a sector um, that, you know, can only go up because the mental health crisis can only get worse. Um, there's no other options to psychedelic medicine to treat these conditions. And these stocks are actually at very compressed valuations. So, you know, we were talking about, you know, a stock is a hedge if it's, if it's cheap. Well, these psychedelic stocks are cheap right now. So, you know, maybe some of your audience wants to have a look at that sector and uh, see what it's all about. Absolutely. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show. I totally agree with you. Yeah, we've done some diving into the psychedelics and it's one of those uh, misinformation uh, sectors that the mainstream media have a hard time I think embracing because they have their own agendas, they have their own methods as to what they want to support. And that's a whole other conversation. So uh, that'll be for next time. Yeah, you betcha. All right, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show with me today. Been, been great. Thanks.